The Old Testament reading this morning is from Numbers 11, verses 4 to 10, and verses 31 to 34. The rabble among them had a strong craving, and the Israelites also wept again and said, If only we had meat to eat. We remember the fish we used to eat in Egypt for nothing, the cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, and the garlic. But now our strength is dried up, and there is nothing at all but this manna to look at. Now the manna was like coriander seed, and its color was like the color of gum resin. The people went around and gathered it, ground it in mills, or beat it in mortars, then boiled it in pots, and made cakes of it. And the taste of it was like the taste of cakes baked with oil. When the dew fell on the camp in the night, the manna would fall with it. Moses heard the people weeping throughout their families, all at the entrances of their tents. Then the Lord became very angry, and Moses was displeased. Then a wind went out from the Lord, and it brought quails from the sea, and let them fall beside the camp, about a day's journey on this side, and a day's journey on the other side, all around the camp, about two cubits deep on the ground. So the people worked all that day and night, and all the next day, gathering the quails. The least anyone gathered was ten homers, and they spread them out for themselves all around the camp. But while the meat was still between their teeth, before it was consumed, the anger of the Lord was kindled against the people, and the Lord struck the people with a very great plague. So that place was called Kibroth Hatava, because there they buried the people who had the craving. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The gospel reading this morning is from John 6, verses 41 to 44, and verses 47 to 51. Hear the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to John. Glory to you, O Lord. Then the Jews began to complain about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They were saying, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How can he now say, I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, Do not complain among yourselves. No one can come to me unless drawn by the Father who sent me, and I will raise that person up on the last day. Very truly, I tell you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats of this bread will live forever, and the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, O Christ. Let's pray together. Our gracious God, may the words of my mouth, may the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable and pleasing in your sight this morning. You are our rock 
and our Redeemer. And we pray now for your blessing upon us as we open your scriptures and pull them toward our lives. Bless us with your spirit, we ask, through Christ our Lord. Amen. What makes a human life compelling, beautiful, life-giving to others? Or let's ask it as a two-part question. What characterizes a beautiful, compelling, life-giving life? As in, like, what adjectives would you, would you use to describe it? Words like loving or wise, trustworthy, courageous, kind. You can fill out that picture however you want to think about that, right? So what characterizes it? But secondly, what cultivates such a life? What are the practices that nurture these kinds of character traits in a person? Hopefully the kind of person that you and I aspire to become, a person like Jesus. These are questions that the leaders from both the City Church and Liberty Church communities uh, reflected on this weekend as we gathered together to plan for the fall and to talk about what it could look like for our communities to meet this moment, fall 2020. Not just in the survival mode of trying to weather the storm and get through it, the long winter of COVID, but rather to embrace and engage this season with all of the pain and possibility that it brings and to embrace and engage God in the midst of it, welcoming all that God might do among us. Because whatever characterizes a beautiful, compelling human life that brings forth life and beauty and justice in the world, that's what we want to be growing toward, isn't it? That's what we want to be growing toward as individuals, that's what we want to be growing toward as a community, growing toward a Jesus-like character. And then whatever cultivates that kind of life, that's what we want to be practicing this fall, imitating Jesus-like habits and actions in both our personal and common life. And so we're going to be exploring these kinds of questions all throughout the fall in our community group discussions and in our own personal work of spiritual formation. And toward that end, we're going to be rolling out a new resource for individuals and groups next week for our church communities. We're calling it Rhythms of Renewal. And it's going to offer bite-sized food for thought and micro practices that we can layer easily into our lives and into our daily rhythms, things that create more space in our lives than they take up without cluttering our lives by piling more stuff to do onto our already very full plates. And so we're excited about what good fruit may come forth through these rhythms of renewal in our lives individually and communally. And then as a complementary pairing to these rhythms, uh, we're doing this sermon series um, this sermon series where we're reflecting not only on what characterizes and cultivates this beautiful and compelling life, but the context in which such growth tends to happen. And last week we began to talk about that context in terms of wilderness. As we began our series on the book of Numbers, which tells the story of Israel's 40-year meandering journey through the desert wilderness of Sinai. After the Lord delivered them from slavery in Egypt, but before he brought them into the promised land of Canaan. Wilderness, as we've seen, is a central motif of the biblical story and a powerful conceptual framework by which Jesus himself and those who seek to follow and imitate Jesus have made sense of and relate to prolonged experiences of suffering and uncertainty in our lives. Now, when you and I think of wilderness, 
we might think of something more like uh, the National Park Service, right, or gear from REI, or backcountry hiking or camping in the midst of some natural beauty that we enjoy, but that's not what wilderness means in the Bible. Wilderness in the Bible is a scary place. It's a desert place where food and water are scarce. It's an unsettled place where there's no sense of permanence. You don't stay too long in one place before it's time to move again. And it's a vulnerable place. There aren't city walls to protect you, and there's no real agriculture or aqueduct to shore up or stabilize your food and water supply. So, it's going, so to be going through a wilderness experience whether we're speaking literally, as in the case of Israel's wandering through the desert, or figuratively, the way wilderness shows up in later episodes of the biblical story, or, and even later in Christian spirituality as this conceptual framework for our understanding and navigating our own sufferings. To be going through a wilderness experience is to be living indefinitely in an in-between place, a not-yet-arrived kind of place. A not knowing how it's going to work out, lots of things still up in the air right now kind of place. And if you've ever been through a significant wilderness experience like that, you know that it can really wear you down, right? You know that. It can wear you down over time. It can break you down. It can make you wonder whether there's any point. It can make you want to give up hope and throw in the towel. But the other thing about wilderness that we experience, our wilderness experience that we discover in the biblical story is that while it is always painful, it is also never hopeless. And it, it is always loaded with the possibility of what God will do in the midst of his people. The book of Hebrews describes how Jesus learned obedience his own experience of suffering. In other words, Jesus' own beautiful, compelling, life-giving character was forged in the furnace of wilderness. And that rings true, doesn't it? If you think about the people you know whose character you find most compelling, whose wisdom you find most compelling, whose joy you find most captivating, it's almost always those people who have suffered who've gone through the process of being broken down over the long wilderness journey, but instead of becoming bitter and cynical, they've become kind and compassionate and wise. Wilderness is the context in which wisdom grows. And just as we know from experience that we don't automatically become wise through our, our wilderness experience, sometimes we become bitter and cynical. We also have to recognize that rarely does anyone become wise without the wilderness. Life in 2020 is a wilderness. It's a wilderness experience for us all. COVID pandemic has disrupted life as we know it in ways that we just couldn't have imagined, most of us anyway, couldn't have imagined or anticipated just eight or nine months ago. And yet now it feels almost unimaginable that we are ever going back to what we used to call normal, right? Life as we used to know it. And then on top of that, this wave of energy that has flooded the movement for racial justice for black and brown Americans, especially in the wake of the murders of Ahmaud Arbery, Breonna Taylor, and George Floyd, all between late February and late May of this year, that wave of energy is changing the world right before our eyes. As more and more stories of black suffering 
are pricking the hearts and consciences of white people who are awakening to the realities of injustice and taking up the work of listening, learning, advocating, and dismantling racist attitudes, structures, and systems that run deep in our hearts and throughout our institutions. And all of that is happening in the context of an election year, right? When the political polarization is reaching fever pitch, public trust in leaders seems to be at an all-time low, and the possibility of productive public discourse feels like it's just disappearing into these silos and echo chambers created by social media algorithms and profit-driven media outlets. This is our shared wilderness. This is the context in which we individually and collectively are being formed in one way or another. And like every wilderness context, this one is loaded with pain and possibility. So how will we meet this moment? Will we embrace and engage our wilderness and the living God who meets us in it? The God who meets us in our disruption and disorientation in order to reorient us toward a life-giving relationship with him and a life-giving love for our neighbor? Or will we give ourselves over to cynicism, bitterness, self-preservation? Will we refuse to move? Will we refuse to change and to do the work God is giving us to do right now? This episode of the story of Israel's wilderness that we just read is a tale of the people's foolishness and failure to meet their wilderness moment and to trust the Lord who was leading them through it. It's actually a story of double failure, one, the failure of the people, and another, the failure of their leader um, to trust the Lord. But we're, we're really only looking at the people's failure today. Moses' story we'll come back and look at next week. It's sandwiched in between the two paragraphs that we just read in Numbers. So today we're just looking at the people's complaint in the wilderness and then God's response to their complaint. So if you look at verses 4 through 10, in that first paragraph, uh, the people are grumbling about food. Since the Lord brought them out of slavery in Egypt, he had been sustaining his people with manna. It's this miracle food that would appear daily. It's not food that could be stored, but it never needed to be stored because the Lord provided it every time they needed it. And as long as the people stayed with the Lord and moved with him through the wilderness, found their home in him, they were sustained by the Lord's daily provision, the same kind of daily bread that we pray for each week when we pray the Lord's Prayer. Give us today our daily bread. Double emphasis on today, right? We pray for God's grace for today. There was purpose to the manna. In Deut Deuteronomy 8, says this. It says, we read that the Lord humbled you by letting you hunger, talking to Israel here, then by feeding you with manna, which neither you nor your ancestors were acquainted, in order to make you understand that one does not live by bread alone. You see, God calls his people to something higher than simply meeting basic physical needs. Certainly not less than that, but something far more grand and glorious than that. He calls his people in, into this covenantal way, this relational way, of being with God, of making a home with God, this one, the Lord, who had liberated them from slavery. And the point of the manna and the point of the wilderness is for the people to grow into this identity and vocation as God's people. They had been freed from slavery. They had been freed for life with God. 
Home is wherever the Lord is. And so the wilderness journey and the miracle food that God provided for the journey, they were designed to strip away every other thing that the people might rely upon for their life so that they would begin to discover in the Lord their home and their joy. But the problem was that the people didn't find the manna to be all that tasty. I mean, you read the description of it, right? It doesn't sound that great. It reminds me of the riced cauliflower that I spent a lot of time eating as I was working on a new diet over the spring and trying to shed a few pounds. It just sounds kind of lame. It wasn't all that tasty. And so the people began to grow dissatisfied with it. It was a food that fit the journey. It just wasn't all that delicious. And the people started to miss the food they used to eat when they were slaves. They became nostalgic for the good old days of slavery. And what we see here is that some people in the community, described here as the rabble or the riffraff among them, they have this strong craving for this food that they miss, right? The cucumbers and the melons and the fish and all the stuff that they used to like, the onions and the leeks and the garlic. So they have a strong craving for this food that they used to eat back in Egypt, and they begin to complain. They complain about their food situation in the wilderness. Well, who are these riffraff? Well, the narrator of this story is portraying them as bad influences, basically. People at the margins of the community whose cynicism is a bad influence on the larger community. Their grumpiness, their grumbling, their complaint, it starts at the edges but then begins to gain a hearing in the people and begins to influence the attitude of the whole community. And so they're asking, who will give us meat to eat? It's like the make dinner great again campaign. It's eventually going to gain enough traction later in the story that the people are actually going to try to appoint a new leader who will take them back to Egypt where they used to be slaves so they can get those onions and the leeks. And the narrator of the story wants us to see that these people are not a healthy influence on the community. And what the community should have done is they should have turned down the volume on those cynical voices, right? They, they shouldn't have tuned in <laughs> to them. But that's not what they do. They listen to those voices. They allow them to shape their imagination of their own experience. They allow them to shape their attitudes. And the cynicism begins to spread. And as the people lean into their cravings, as they lean into their cynicism, they begin to think about their past and their present in these really distorted ways. They're drooling over their memories of onions and fish, and they talk about it as free food, free food that they used to have. Which, yeah, the slave masters provided food for their slaves, so it's not like they were paying cash for their meals, but they paid dearly for it with their bodies. Their experience in slavery in Egypt was brutal. Their bodies broke. They made bricks without straw under the scorching desert sun, and they were miserable. So this whole free food ruse is some serious revisionist history inspired by a craving that hijacks the people's ability to think clearly, so much so that they begin to rationalize their own experience of slavery as not so bad compared to this wilderness life with God. Do you know that experience? I do. What are the appetites that you sometimes find yourself appeasing in insane ways <laughs> and then rationalizing it? When you think about the programs for happiness that we all follow, they're pretty much the same, 
one to the next. We're all people. We're cut from the same cloth. We all want security and safety, right? We all want affection and esteem. We all want control. And when things are painful or difficult, we want to change those things. And none of those desires is in itself necessarily bad, right? But what do we do with those desires? And what do we grasp at to get them? What do we reach for to soothe ourselves when we feel the pain or deprivation of our wilderness experience? Do we reach for God, the God who is there, the God who sustains and provides, who makes his home with us so that we may make our home with him? Do we reach for him or for something else? The Israelites weep and wail for meat instead of the daily bread they are given. And in verses 31 to 34, we see how God responds. Not the way you'd expect, or at least not the way I'd expect. I would have expected a no answer, the way I generally answer my children when they're asking for something that I know isn't good for them. But God doesn't answer with the no you'd expect. He actually answers with a much more terrifying yes. He gives the foolish people what they want. A wind went out from the Lord and it brought quails from the sea and let them fall beside the camp. A day's journey everywhere, every which way you look, a mess of quail three feet deep. It's disgusting. And what do the people do? They immediately begin to hoard the quail, don't they? Immediately, they begin to get as much as they possibly can. They said everyone in the whole camp, everyone starts hoarding quail. The smallest stash that anyone gathered, it says, was 10 homers, which is like, if you want to, it's like 50 bushels. It's like 465 gallon jugs of milk or something piled. That's, that's the size pile that we're talking about. It's this frenetic, grasping, hoarding. It's this acting out of a basically, thank God we don't have to trust God anymore for provision. Finally, we can store this stuff up. We can eat what we want, and we can live by sight and not by faith. C.S. Lewis says there are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, thy will be done, and those to whom God says in the end, thy will be done. And this story is a sad one where God says to these people, thy will be done. You want quail, here it is. And the quail ends up being poison food, basically. A, a plague strikes them, they die, and the place that they are is called Kivrot Hat Ava, Graves of Desire, which makes me think of a book by Ed Welch called Addictions, A Banquet in the Grave. Isn't that just a picture of what it's like when we indulge our cravings and we lean into them rather than reaching for the one who brings life? The story ends in a sad way. This episode does anyway. But if you keep reading the story forward, if you keep reading it especially all the way forward to Jesus, where you see how God really responds ultimately to our own foolishness and failure, is what we see is that God's ultimate answer isn't the yes where he lets us feast to death on our own natural consequences. Rather, God's ultimate response to our foolishness and our failure is that he himself will descend into the grave of our own desire, our desires gone wrong. 
He'll plunder that grave, that prison we've created for ourselves, and he will rise from that grave and lead a host of captives with him. That's us. This is the story of Jesus. This is the story of God who comes down, of God who comes to make his home with us that we may make our home with him. This is the great exodus God is leading in Jesus. Out of our captivity to our cravings and our consequences and into a home of permanence, peace, justice, and joy with God and one another. And today we live in this in-between moment, right? Christ has died, Christ is risen, Christ will come again, and we wait for that day. We wait for the fullness of that home. We wait for the end of the wilderness, but we wait in the midst of the wilderness. And just as God was faithful to provide the manna for his people in Sinai, he provides us with miracle food for our journey as well. A table set before us in the midst of our wilderness. Jesus himself, the bread of life, his body broken, his blood outpoured, given for us that we may feed upon him and be nourished for our wilderness journey. Friends, this fall, as we seek to grow up into that life, that beautiful and compelling life like Jesus, as we seek to take on these practices that cultivate such a life and as we recognize this context in which we're doing it as a wilderness context where we need God, to strip away the things we rely on so that we may grasp for him. Will you grasp for Jesus, the one who holds you, the one who makes himself available to you, the one who sets the table for you in the presence of your enemies in the presence of a wilderness, who says, come to me, feed upon me, and I will give you life. May God give us grace for our wilderness journey that this may be so with us. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.